According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn the word of God to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 this morning, where we will be in the process of this study. Luke chapter 1. I hope I have the right slide show up here. I do. As we deal with the birth, infancy, and adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist, this section of our Harmony of the Gospels. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to quiet our hearts, prepare our minds for the study of God's Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, it has been a... uh, yeah, it's been a crazy week. It's been filled with unexpected uh, sorrows. It's been filled with uh, so many things that have uh, that have it just has our mind racing in in many different directions. Father, we just simply ask now at this hour that you would quiet our hearts. We ask, Father, that you might set aside distractions. We ask, Father, that the living and abiding Word of God might fill our fill our minds and fill our souls. We do pray for the Odell family. We grieve with them. We weep with them. We lift them up in prayer. We thank you that you are such a God of mercy, the Father of comfort. And we ask that that mercy, that comfort might be bestowed upon Noel, upon Kathy, Ethan and Corey, uh, PK and his wife and their children. Father, and uh, most especially for Walter as he, uh, as he hears the news of his wife. We just give these things to you for now, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, if uh, any other strangers come in, I guess I'll ask John and... And uh, Michael, just step out there and nice to have a big tall guy around and <laughs> and deal with whoever comes in. We probably get 20 calls a week and five or six visitors that come in here looking for money or looking for something. All right. Luke chapter one, as we get started this morning. At one time, we handed out a Harmony of the Gospels as a part. I know that was a part of the packet that we gave you in the introduction to our Life of Christ series. It is the same Harmony that was printed in the Through the Bible series, and so you may now have two copies of that same uh, Harmony of the Gospels. And if you do not have one, then uh, we will be sure to get one to you. In fact, I think there are even some copies of just that by itself out there in the hallway. The uh, it's broken down into different sections, into different events, and we have covered the first one of those sections, which was the introduction to uh, Jesus Christ. It covered Luke's introduction from Luke 1, 1 through 4. It covered the pre-incarnation work of Christ from John 1, 1 through 8. It also covered, uh, in the third section, covered uh, genealogies, and that was all material that we have dealt with to this point of time. This morning we're ready to begin the second main section of the harmony, which is the birth, infancy, and adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist. It will then move on to his baptism and the early Judean ministry, and then take us on through the Galilean ministry, the Perean, and other ministry, and then finally the last Judean ministry in the final week of Christ. So we'll break those down in sections as we come to them. Looking this morning at the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist from John, from Luke 1, 5 through 25. And this is the text where we'll be today, and uh, we'll see how far we get with it here this morning. We are starting just a few minutes late, but I will have to 
bring us to a conclusion right at 11 o'clock because of the, uh, the events that we have going on today. All right, Luke chapter 1. In the days, we've already read the first four verses in the introduction uh, to this series, so we'll just pick up with verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. They had no, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and to the disobedient, I'm sorry, and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is the message of Gabriel, the message of the angel to Zacharias. But Zacharias has doubts, which we see in verse 18. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have sent, I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The statement of why the divine discipline is coming upon him is explained in verse 20, and uh, it's not really left to us to speculate the issues involved, because the statement is made there that he failed to apply faith, that he in fact disbelieved the promises of God. Verse 21, the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And they kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. Two more verses now, 24 and 25. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he, took, when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. All right, so there is Luke 1, verses 5 through 25, and we're going to break down for you some of the details involved, some of the history involved, so that we can have a framework to understand the circumstances that surrounded the birth of Christ, starting with the forerunner, starting with the herald of, uh, of his ministry. And so we can deal with it here this morning. Let's start, first of all, with uh, point one. We deal with King Herod. And I'm just going to simply outline this in three broad points, and then we'll give some sub-points and additional study as a part of this. We'll deal, first of all, with Herod. We'll look, secondly, at Zacharias and Elizabeth. 
And then we will deal with the actual message of Gabriel under point three. King Herod reigned from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. Uh, the, in fact, the reign of King Herod is very important for us in fixing the chronology of Christ himself. Uh, we realize right away that we have a chronology problem when Herod dies four years before Christ. And yet Christ is born during the reign of Herod. And Herod orders the uh, murder of all the babies in Bethlehem and so forth. And so right away we recognize there's a discrepancy here. And we understand that that discrepancy arises in, a, in an error. In the miscalculation on the part of the, uh, of the monk who actually gave us the BCAD dating system to begin with. Remember... We were not using the B.C. calendar B.C. Remember that we were not counting down the years B.C. That the B.C. A.D. calendar was actually um, developed and devised five centuries after Christ. I think in the fifth, possibly the sixth century A.D. when uh, the whole B.C. A.D. calendar was put into effect. And the uh, Roman church official that put it into effect basically was giving his... Uh, calculations upon the founding of Rome, which was where everything else was dated according to the Roman Empire anyway. And uh, he had been a few years off, so we recognize that now and have no problem uh, coordinating the dates so far as they are concerned. We can coordinate the Roman date to modern dating system very well. It's simply the birth of Christ, the death of Christ, that is now even to this day left with some uh, leeway and some room for, uh, for speculation. But King Herod reigned from 37 to 4 B.C., sub-point A. And he is one of the most amazing and interesting historical characters you can ever study. He was born in the late 70s, that is the late 70s B.C., into an aristocratic Idumean family. The Idumeans were Edomites. In Latin, they were called Idumeans. The Romans designated the, the territory of the Idumeans as Idumea. This was the Latin term for the Edomites. And they broke down, essentially, the Idumeans and the Eudaeans, although, to a large extent, the Romans lumped them into the same category, viewed them all as one and the same. Born into an Edomite family, an Idumean family that had converted to Judaism during the reign of John Hyrcanus I. There was also a John Hyrcanus II, by the way, for those of you that... Um, enjoy uh, Maccabean uh, history, enjoy the history of this particular era between the Testaments. Born in the late 70s B.C., although he did not reign, begin to reign until 37 B.C., into an aristocratic Idumean family that had converted to Judaism in the reign of John Hyrcanus I. Very briefly, to give you a thumbnail sketch of Jewish history in between the Testaments. Um, the prophecies with respect to the book of Daniel are very helpful in that they outline a series of empires from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome. They outline the, the sweeping events of, of history with respect to how they would have impact upon the Jewish people. And as Babylon was swept away and as Persia came in and Daniel was on the scene to 
uh, to welcome that transition, to welcome King Cyrus of Persia, for example, to have fruit and bear influence in the Persian court. Uh, Esther had influence in the Persian court and so forth. As the Old Testament comes to a close with the book of Malachi, uh, Persia is still the dominant nation, although Israel understood that another nation was yet to come, that the, uh, the, uh, um, belly and, and uh, are, are the uh, chest and arms of silver were going to be replaced by belly and thighs of bronze, which would then be replaced by the legs of iron. And uh, Israel, as they understood their prophetic calendar, was anticipating these things to occur. But as the Old Testament came to a close, Persia was still dominant over them. And then after the Old Testament was completed was when uh, it was when the Greeks arose, when Alexander the Great arose and he conquered and so forth. Uh, Josephus records, in fact, that when Alexander was sweeping through uh, Palestine, that the Jewish elders then went out to greet him and welcomed him and understood that uh, that this had been foretold, understood that the uh, the the rapid goat that would come in and conquer would have his victory, and and they welcomed him. They understood that as fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, and they greeted him and welcomed him uh, as being foretold, and. Uh, Alexander liked that. He uh, <laughs> he was a bit of a megalomaniac anyway, and a demon possessed uh, monster. And he he liked the fact that uh, that divine prophecy had mentioned him. And he very shortly went down to Egypt, where they uh, they viewed him as being a god. And he liked that as well. And so the history unfolds. Now Rome is on the way, but has not yet arrived. And yet there comes a very interesting period of. Jewish history where um, they took it upon themselves to gain and fight for and gain their independence. And what essentially happened was that the atrocities of the Greeks had become so wicked when Antiochus Epiphanes went in and defiled the temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar and the different things that he did that it was too much for the Jews to bear. And so a priest launched a rebellion, and he was very shortly killed. His name was Matthias, or Mattathias. He was very shortly killed. And then his five sons then took up the war, uh, one of which, the oldest of which, was Judas Maccabeus. And I'm giving you in a nutshell this morning what is effectively hours and hours of history. <laughs> um, but Judas Maccabeus was the oldest son, uh, called the Hammer, or the Hammerer. And uh, the Maccabean era, uh, era was then named after him, after Judas, and then the, the brothers and the sons that then followed. And they succeeded. They succeeded in throwing off the Greek dominion from over them. And not necessarily because they were so brilliant or that they were so powerful or that the Lord was with them, but by and large, the Greeks had enough problems on their own because the Romans were conquering from the west and the Parthians were conquering from the east and the northeast. And so essentially, the, the Greeks were effectively left fighting for their own survival in Greece and in Syria and the other regions and didn't have time to mess with those pesky Jews down there in Jerusalem, and so they left them alone. And what effectively happened then was that they gained their independence, and they gained their independence and, and uh, established their own kingdom, as it were, at that period of time. Now, it was entirely human effort, and it was entirely, um, as we would say, it doesn't even come into the realm of Daniel's prophecy that gave the progression from, from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome. 
see, as the Father's plan for how that dominion was going to happen. It's quite interesting, too, that this was a family of priests that was involved in, in waging this war. And that when they established their kingdom, their throne, John Hyrcanus being then the first that they crowned king, he was both a priest and a king. And then his son that, uh, that then followed him, forming this dynasty, as they called it, this Hasmonean dynasty. So you may find these terms, and I'll just spell them out for you here. And if you want to do more reading on it, you can. Uh, Josephus gives good information on it. Uh, First Maccabees gives good information on it. First Maccabees is an apocryphal book. We don't consider it biblical, but it does provide some good uh, historical information. The Maccabean era or the Hasmonean era or the Hasmonean dynasty. Both have referenced the same time period. They both refer to uh, the time period which began with the overthrow of uh, Greek rule and it ended with uh, the uh, they were conquered by the Romans specifically the general Pompey and so for that brief period of time they maintained their independence and they were under a king priest who was from the tribe of Levi, not from the tribe of Judah. And that's a very important point. The line of David, the line of Judah, ended when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple and carried all of Israel off into captivity. When Ezra and Nehemiah brought them back, they did not restore that Judean throne. When Ezra and Nehemiah led them back and they rebuilt the temple and they rebuilt the city, they were still a population under Persian rule. And and they did not seat a son of David on the throne. They never have had a son of David on the throne since the uh, fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And so this era, the Hasmonean dynasty, was not a descendant of David. It was not a Davidic king. It was a priest acting as king. And as such, you and I can biblically look at it and, and view it as being evil. We can view it as being substitutionary for the Father's plan. When in fact there is a prophecy of a coming king priest who is going to be, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is prophet, priest, and king, who is the greater son of David, and who has a priesthood that's not the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. He doesn't, he's not a Levitical priest, but he's the priest after the order of Melchizedek, and you really have to do studies on the book of Hebrews and elsewhere to understand Jesus Christ as the king, pring, uh, the king priest, the one prophesied who would bring uh, peace between these two offices. So, this in a nutshell is what we're dealing with when we deal with the intertestamental history. Now, what happened after the Romans conquered, after Pompey conquered, and they set up, um, they set up a kingdom there in place under Roman rule was that they, uh, a good associate of the Romans was, uh, was, uh, Herod's father, a man named Antipater, and I'm going to give that to you next on the screen. Because with the overthrow of the Hasmonean dynasty, with no more of, of John Hyrcanus or John Hyrcanus II or Aristobulus or the other 
uh, the other uh, Hasmonean Jewish priestly rulers, the Romans came in and the Romans set up Herod to rule over the Jews. Subpoint B now, Herod's father, Antipater, A-N-T-I-P-A-T-E-R, he had been an advisor to John Hyrcanus II, but he was also connected with Rome. So he forms the link, Herod's father forms the link between that Hasmonean dynasty where the priests were trying to rule as Jewish kings and now the Roman rule. Herod's father formed the link because he was an advisor to, to uh, Hyrcanus II. That's a Hasmonean king. And he was also connected with the Roman officials, with the Roman government, with Pompey and with the officials who followed. Both Antipater and Herod became loyal servants of Rome and they were rewarded accordingly. They were rewarded accordingly. Subpoint one. Herod was nominated king of Judea by Mark Antony in 37 B.C. Herod was nominated king of Judea. When the Romans started to divide up their provinces, they conquered Egypt, they conquered Judea, they conquered Idumea, they conquered uh, Syria eventually. And they were dividing up the different provinces into different territories. It's, it's kind of a study in Roman history itself to understand what they did with different provinces and how they handled them. Some provinces were senatorial provinces that the Roman Senate oversaw and appointed a, uh, a governor over those regions. Others were imperial provinces that Caesar himself maintained control over. Some they allowed to be semi-autonomous. They allowed uh, independent kings to rule. And so long as that king paid the annual tribute to Rome, they didn't care. That's what they did with the Judea. Herod was nominated king of Judea by Mark Antony in 37 B.C. Octavius presented Herod to the Roman Senate. And the Senate appointed Herod unanimously as king of the Jews. He himself not even being Jewish. <laughs> he himself being an Edomite. And for you and I who understand Jacob and Esau, the twin brothers, for you and I that understand a whole Old Testament history of conflict between the Jews and the Edomites, we can immediately pick up on why this is going to be a problem. Even if the Romans were not aware of the issues that, or that they were stirring up. Antony and Octavius, we understand historically being members of the second Roman triumvirate. You understand some of these historical characters, perhaps. Uh, if not, then uh, you can do some more recreational reading on Roman history and remind yourself of what the first triumvirate was all about with uh, Caesar and Pompey and Crassus. And then remind yourself what the second triumvirate was about with Octavius, Mark Antony, and... Uh, oh, starts with an L. Help me out. Lepidus? I'm forgetting now. As soon as he died, though, the triumvirate became a pair and that didn't work and, and Octavius and Antony went to war with one another. And so we have this described here. Secondly, 
Herod was hated by Cleopatra and had many land disputes with Egypt. Absolutely hated by Cleopatra. And there were many land disputes between Judea and Egypt during Herod's reign. Herod was in a tough spot because Herod was close personal friends with Mark Antony. And yet Mark Antony was sleeping with Cleopatra. (laughs) And so here's Herod stuck in the middle. And Cleopatra despised him. In fact, for a period of time, Egypt seized Jericho as a city and as territory. And uh, there was nothing Herod could do about it. He could gripe to Mark Antony, but he wasn't going to contradict Cleopatra either. So Herod was in a tough spot. Herod was in even even more tough spot when, uh, with the death of the other member of the triumvirate, started with an L, <laughs> when he died, then war uh, arose between the other two members, between Octavius and Mark Antony. And the problem was that Herod was a friend of both. And... Uh, didn't want to be on the losing side, obviously. Fortunately, um, we, we know that Octavius achieved the victory. We know that uh, Mark Antony killed himself, Cleopatra killed herself, and that Octavius, who would then be renamed Augustus, would become the first emperor of Rome. Augustus uh, Caesar becomes the first emperor of Rome. And in 30 BC, with the civil war ended and with Octavius in firm control, he confirmed Herod as the king of the Jews, as king of Judea, and uh, his position was confirmed and really strengthened from that point forward. There was never again a dispute for Herod from that point forward. In fact, with the death of Cleopatra, things got a little bit easier for him. He got Jericho back, a lot of the land disputes were resolved, and so forth. So his appointment as king of the Jews was confirmed by Octavius, who became Augustus Caesar, the first emperor of Rome, in 30 B.C., Now, Herod had been married before, but in an attempt to make himself uh, accepted by the Jews, he divorced that wife and he married the, uh, into the, the Hasmonean family. He married a daughter of, of John Hyrcanus. And so he married into the Jewish Hasmonean dynasty, which was, remember, a high priestly family. Remember, it was a ruling family in the, in the Hasmonean dynasty. But he was never accepted by the Jewish people. Clearly, divorce is against Mosaic law. And uh, clearly, uh, for this daughter of Aaron to marry an, an Edomite was not good. And the Jews basically saw this as a political claim, which is all it really was married into the Jewish Hasmonean dynasty, but was never accepted by the Jewish people. In many respects, as as wicked as Herod was, and we know that he was evil. I mean, we know that every, every, every shred of, of historical documentation attests to that, every shred of biblical references attests to that. But it's quite interesting to see how in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, all this history came together and how the very fact of Herod on the throne produced the events that would impact the life of Christ. Because probably 
more than any other earthly event or more than any other earthly circumstances, it was it was Herod himself that launched both the Pharisees and the Sadducees into such prominence among the faithful Jews of Israel. It was it and it was the uh, rule of Herod that launched the uh, revolutionary uh, party of uh, the Zealots to try to overthrow the rule of Rome, to try to overthrow and cast down the the Edomite. Uh, influence of Herod, for example. And so all the things that we see in the life of Christ study in terms of the Pharisees, in terms of the Sadducees, in terms of the, um, the Zealots, the party of the Zealots, remember Simon Zealot, the disciple of Christ, all of those things were really thrust into preeminence as a reaction against Herod. <laughs> because of Herod and his tremendous evil and the things that he did in ruling over the Jewish people as king of the Jews, as king of Judea. And he had the full backing of the Roman government, whatever he wanted to do. So long as every year he paid his tribute to Rome, Rome was happy. And as long as Herod was paying that tribute on an annual basis, Herod controlled things in Judea. As far as Rome was concerned, he was a great king. He was a great king. And so it's an interesting study on its own. Uh, Warren Dowd has recently made reference to Herod and will be giving you more information on Herod's family in the Book of Acts series that he's doing on Sunday nights. I think there is a handout that has been posted on the website in conjunction with that. And so if you go to AustinBibleChurch.com and you look under the current uh, or doctrinal studies uh, on, on the link there that outlines Warren Dowd's uh, series in the Book of Acts, you will find material on Herod's family that's posted there, and you can download the, the PDF or the Word document or whatever you'd like to get uh, more information on this uh, particular family. Now, when we deal with Zechariah, point two, when we deal with Zechariah and Elizabeth, the language that describes them here in verses 5 through 7 is extraordinary. Zechariah and Elizabeth are described with notable terms. Zacharias and Elizabeth are described in notable terms. Point two, Zacharias and Elizabeth are described with notable terms. Luke 1, 5 through 7. Before we even get to the narrative of the call, before we even get to the message of, uh, of Gabriel in verses 8 and following, just this one paragraph in verses 5 through 7 tells us a tremendous amount. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. So point A, Zacharias was of the division of Abijah. Recently in our Life of David's series, we dealt with this. When King David broke down the line of, uh, of priests, into their 24 divisions. And did I not put a scripture down on this? David broke down the descendants of Aaron into 24 divisions. Into 24 divisions. In the uh, 440 plus years between Aaron and David, there were quite a few sons of Aaron at this point. And they needed order. And David provided that order. He broke them down into 24 divisions. 
And Zacharias was of the division of Abijah. And I failed to record the uh, scripture reference on this. It's going to be a Chronicles reference, and I'll find it for you by next week. Essentially, as I break this down for you here, I'm a 1440 Exodus guy, by the way, 1440 B.C. or thereabouts, 15th century. And uh, placing David and Solomon at about 1000 B.C. means we've got about 400 years of history in between Aaron and this point of time now where David is organizing the priests. Now, Aaron had four sons. He had uh, Nadab and Abihu. We know what happened to them when they offered their strange fire before the Lord. The, the Lord uh, blasted them with fire, and they died without children. But these other sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, then became the clan leaders of the descendants of Aaron. And every son of Eleazar and every son of Ithamar was eligible to become a high priest because they were sons of Aaron. They were, they were all legitimate priests. And uh, we know that after Aaron died, Eleazar became the next high priest, and then we know his son became the next high priest, and so forth. Well, by the time of David, there were, there were uh, dozens of different family lines that had descended. In fact, as he had noted, by the time of David, there were now 16 lines of priests that descended from Eleazar and eight lines of priests that descended from Ithamar. That's just simply how it had broken down in the intervening years, 400 plus years between Aaron and David. In the time of David, I should say. David had no part of that line, of course. You understand what I'm saying. And so David recognized the 16 lines of Eleazar, the eight lines of Ithamar, and he, in fact, recognized that and appointed 24 divisions of, uh, of priests that could then rotate through and handle the priestly service. And this is material that we cover in our Life of David series. And uh, those notes, those notes available? Have we published those notebooks yet? I think we have. All right. So, when we deal with the line of Abijah, and I find the reference for you in uh, Chronicles, I think it's First Chronicles, I think it's 24, I may be wrong on that, but we'll find that Abijah is number 8 out of the 24. And the fact that this was his lot, this was the lot of that clan, Within that clan, one member would be selected to go in and offer the in, offer the incense. And uh, this is another matter that uh, Warren Dowd has really taught quite well in the Book of Acts series in describing the procedures uh, for temple service with respect to how this would be the one time in in his life that he would have this opportunity, that he would be the priest selected to take the blood and the incense into the holy place to, uh, to offer the incense up on the altar of incense and to sprinkle the blood before the veil. This would be his one time in his life that he's had the opportunity to do so. Described how old this man is here, it's quite interesting that, um, that every time that the, line, that the division of Abijah has come around, 
uh, and he's had the opportunity. His name has been put into the pool to be drawn, you know, by lot to be the priest to go for. He's been passed over. He's been passed over. He's been passed over. And now here he is, old, advanced in, in years, and he is finally drawn and selected to be the priest of the line of Abijah that, uh, that goes in here to offer up this, uh, this uh, incense on the altar. Elizabeth, it says point B, Elizabeth was also of the priestly line of Aaron. There were requirements for priests in terms of who they were to marry. There were even stricter requirements for a high priest in terms of who he was to marry. Although the Levites and the priests would marry outside of their tribe occasionally, Zacharias did not. We don't specifically know where the link is between Mary and Elizabeth. We do know, and we will discuss it at some point when we're introduced to Mary. Later in this chapter, Gabriel comes to Mary and uh, tells her that even though she's a virgin, she's about to become pregnant. She's going to bear the, the Christ. And then you'll notice in verse 36, the angel explains, Behold, even your relative or your kinsman Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. We know that Mary is a descendant of David. Mary is of the tribe of Judah. And so we're not entirely certain where the connection is between Mary and Elizabeth. That she is a cousin of some sort or a relative of some sort, most likely by marriage at some point. But that is not, uh, that is not entirely certain. Now both Zacharias and Elizabeth are described as righteous and blameless. And this grabs our attention immediately. Righteous and blameless. Dikaios and Amimptos. They are described as righteous and blameless. There is only one other place in Scripture where a person is described as righteous and blameless, and that is Noah in Genesis 6-9. There are other people described as righteous, other people described as blameless, but to put these two terms together, it only occurs once in the Bible besides here. Dikaios, meaning righteous or just, justified. They are born-again believers. They are righteous in God's sight. We know that the only way to obtain that righteousness is to place your faith in Christ and to have that righteousness imputed. They were believers in the coming Christ. But not just positionally saved, they were walking the Christian way of life. They were walking with devotion, the blameless walk, described here as righteous and blameless. Amimptos in their walk. Only Noah is described in such terms in Genesis 6-9. Search all the scripture for these terms to be combined in the same verse. And uh, it's quite extraordinary. We know the character of Noah. We know where he was in the midst of his generation. And Zechariah and Elizabeth will likewise stand out in their generation. The spiritual condition of Israel at this time is pathetic. And I hope more of that will come out. You will notice the purpose here for the Baptist, as it says in verse 17, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. 
so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The spiritual condition of Israel was horrible at this point of time. We're going to see more of those indications um, in, in upcoming classes as we see the condition of Israel. They were so caught up in the politics and so caught up in, uh, in the daily life of where they were that very few were actually looking for the coming Christ. The Old Testament closed. They haven't had a prophet for 400 years. And very few, by the time of this day and age, were looking for the coming Christ. And we'll see that. Elizabeth's barrenness, point D. Elizabeth's barrenness and the miraculous baby are reminiscent of both Sarah and Rebecca. Elizabeth's barrenness and the miraculous baby are reminiscent of Sarah and Rebecca. You could add to that, you could add... Uh, um, Samuel's mother, Hannah, as well. Another case of barrenness where a child would then be promised. Elizabeth's barrenness and the miraculous baby. Sarah, remember, was advanced in years. And yet the Lord came and made a promise. Not only are you going to be a, uh, have a, a son, but all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The Abrahamic covenant was then bestowed upon the son Isaac. And that son was named. We'll talk about that in a moment too when we focus on the Baptist. That God named him before his birth. God named him in accordance with his work assignment. In Isaac's case, it was laughter. In John's case, it's grace. And we'll deal with that. We'll deal with Yohanan. It will deal with the, the shining of God's grace that Jehovah shines upon his people. Uh, Rebecca, likewise, was barren. Uh, Jacob, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Isaac, himself the child of promise, is uh, married 20 years and still looking for his first child. And Rebecca's not having any babies. And they made that a matter of prayer. And then the promise gets made that not only would he have a, a son, but he would in fact have two sons that twins were in her womb, and that the older would serve the younger. And the promises that were made with respect to Jacob, with respect to the son who would be renamed Israel. And so, there's a lot of uh, parallels here that then come into play when we deal with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Because they're advanced in age. They're not able to have children. And yet, the Lord makes promises concerning the birth of this son. That He's got a plan for this son. We're going to have a miraculous baby a son that will be born and will be named specifically by the Lord before his birth. A lot of parallels that come into, line and come into play here. And thirdly, we look at the message. We look at the message of Gabriel. Gabriel appears to Zacharias as a response to his prayers. As a response to his prayers. Luke 1, 11 through 17 an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. Your petition has been heard. Zacharias has been in prayer with his wife. We keep highlighting the fact of of uh, prayer life between husbands and wives and how powerful that can be. And how long do you pray? How long do you wrestle with the angel? 
You pray once or twice and then just give up on it and say, oh, well, prayer doesn't work. God didn't answer. And we have no idea how old they are. It doesn't tell us how old they are. It just says they're old. It says they're advanced in years. Verse 7. All right. So however old that may be, I'm not going to throw a number out there because then I'd end up offending somebody. <laughs> All right. Specifically, I mean, we don't know. It may be that Zechariah, because he had never yet been drawn by lot and because he had never yet fulfilled his temple duty, did not retire at the age of 50 or 60 or whatever most priests retired, but he actually stayed on active service and he may now be in his 70s or his 80s. We don't know. How old do you have to be to be advanced in years? And he's still praying. He's still praying. Kind of like Abraham and Isaac. I mean, I mean Abraham and, and Sarah. He's 100 years old. She's 90 years old. When are we going to give up on prayer? Or are we going to be faithful until death? I think these things then become, uh, become challenges for us. Subpoint A, a son is going to be born by means of a miracle and named by the commandment of God. A son is going to be born by means of a miracle and named by the commandment of God. This is not only reminiscent of Isaac and Jacob, but is, is prophetic of Jesus himself. Born by means of a miracle when the virgin conceives and named by the commandment of God. We have a son born by means of a miracle and named by the commandment of God. John the Baptist is an extraordinary character. And not only this morning, but throughout this series, as we move on into the baptism of Christ at the River Jordan, and even before that, when we see the Baptist ministry uh, of uh, proclaiming repentance and baptizing in the, in, the, in the Jordan River, we're going to see an extraordinary individual. One that Christ says is the greatest Old Testament believer to ever live. He says, of those born among women, there has arisen none greater than John the Baptist. That's an impressive statement. And uh, we'll, we'll break some of that down and, and understand some of the issues there. And even with all that greatness, we have an example of one of the most humble believers who ever lived. A believer who understood that he was the forerunner. Who understood that he must increase and I must decrease. And that willingness to decrease, that willingness to, to disappear, that willingness to, uh, to uh, spotlight Christ and not himself is exactly why he is the greatest of those born among women. Because he was so humble. Because he understood his role. And he lived it faithfully. We'll be dealing with these issues here as well. Now secondly, he is a son born with a specific purpose in the grace eternal plan of the ages. And this is the thrust of what the angel is telling his father. This is what Gabriel is telling Zacharias. And Zacharias should have a framework for this if he understands Malachi. A son born with a specific purpose in the grace eternal plan of the ages. The grace eternal plan of the ages. That's my short title for the plan of God. The longer title is God the Father's grace eternal plan of the ages for the maximum glorification of Jesus Christ. That's the full title. With the grace eternal plan of the ages. This is God the Father's grace eternal plan of the ages for the maximum glorification of Jesus Christ. Otherwise known as the plan of God. <laughs> you know, you could put the plan of God on the cover of a book and call it a title. 
but God the Father's grace eternal plan of the ages for the maximum glorification of Jesus Christ, that's a little bit harder to spell out on a title. But that's what it is. And he's born with this specific plan, and it's highlighted here as the angel speaks to him. It says, Many will rejoice at his birth, verse 14, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Prior to, I mean, this is post-conception and pre-birth, as we call it. Before he has left the womb and entered into this world, he already has the filling of the Holy Spirit. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. They're in a spiritual, sad state of affairs. It is he who will go as a forerunner. This is where Malachi comes in. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. He will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. When a, when a society becomes so selfish, I think about our own culture. <laughs> I think about a generation that, you know, it used to be that generations would work and struggle and sacrifice and plan on passing along something to their children so that their children would have a better life than they did. And they would sacrifice and they would work to see that maybe if they, if they couldn't go to college that their children were going to go to college or if they could never own a home that their children were going to own a home and that, that they, they were working for the following generations, for their children and for their grandchildren to, to build a better life for them than they were able to have. See, am I explaining this right? But now it seems that what we're observing is a generation that is living for themselves. And we're seeing a generation of young people that do not expect to have it. Do not expect to receive anything from their parents' generation. Do not expect to do as well as their parents' generation. We have a very pessimistic young generation coming up that sees things as worse rather than better. And I just think that's quite interesting to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. Because those hearts had abandoned the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You know, the issue is the heart attitude of people when Christ comes. It doesn't say here to make a kingdom ready, to make a world ready, to make a people ready. The issue when we talk about imminence now today for you and I is are we ready? Is our heart prepared? Are we the faithful virgins? Are we the ones that are waiting for our husband to return? Or are we living for ourselves? See, kingdom theology comes along and the post-millennial theology comes along and is trying to transform this world and bring in the kingdom of, through human effort and, 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 and convert the world to righteousness and then hand it to Christ when he returns to say, hey, here's your kingdom. We turned this world into a beautiful place for you. We saved the world. We promoted the gospel. And that's an evil, evil thought. This world is getting worse. We understand that. Evil men and impostors go from bad to worse. The progression of the cosmos is darkening. But the issue is, where are we in our heart attitude? Are we prepared for Him to return? 
that's what the Baptist was commissioned to do. That's what Elijah will do at second advent to the Jewish people in the tribulation. And uh, that's our question for today. Is our heart prepared for the return of Christ? If we were to hear the trumpet today, would we exult and celebrate and rejoice? Or would we be found naked? Would we be, uh, would we be, would we have regrets? Because we're living in this world. We're living for this world. We're pursuing our own selfishness. That then becomes the question. All right, I am at the end of our time. We'll have to come back to this and deal with the Malachi passage in Malachi 4. We're going to have to, and we'll spend time on this next week, to spotlight where the Old Testament ended in the book of Malachi. To spotlight the, um, the concept of imminency that they were living under. And just because you and I can look back at it and say, well, there was 400 years of silence. Well, we know that now looking back. They didn't know that. All they knew was that Malachi gave a, a, a scripture. It was canonized. It was recorded in the Twelve. It was a part of their Old Testament. It was the last part of their Old Testament. The last given prophetic word of the prophets. And then a year goes by. Another year. Year after year after year after year. No more risen prophets. No more... Scripture being written, silence. And they didn't know it was going to be 400 years. All right? And then the Baptist arises and the issues that occur here. And so, in reality, even though Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, are in our New Testament, and they were written in Greek, keep in mind, the church doesn't start till Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 1, in dispensations now, belong in the Old Testament. And so the, that, that link from Malachi to Luke then becomes very important, and we're going to spend some time next week to deal with that and hopefully make sure that we, uh, that we understand what we're looking at. All right, I'm going to close in prayer. Before I do, though, do we have any questions? Is there anything that was fuzzy or anything you want to follow up with here before we go? Okay. No, that was not Herod the Great at that point in the movie. That was his son. After Herod's death, then his realm was broken down into different portions, into fourths. And you would end up with a, with Tetrarch, Herod the Tetrarch. And then there were others that were given dominion over Judea, over Galilee, over uh, Perea, and so forth. And so that was a son of Herod the Great that was portrayed there. And yeah, he was from every influence of or inference of history. He was uh, he was a drunk. He was promiscuous with women and men. He was he was something else. <laughs> yeah, he was a whole character study on his own. All the sons of Herod are interesting in how they hated one another and fought with one another and stole stole wives from one another and and uh, <laughs> different things there. That's that's a whole other issue. In that regard, that's a good question, though. Different Herod. You'll probably find six or seven different Herods that, that bear that name when you see, when, when uh, you get Warren Dowd's notes on the, on the Herod family. And you just kind of need a scorecard to keep, them tra- keep track of them. <laughs> All right. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We studied a lot of history today, Father, and I, I pray that you would uh, 
uh, take these uh, isagogic studies, allow us to place scripture in the proper context, allow us to understand uh, every issue of what's involved so that we can make better application of the scriptures that you would have for us to live. We know that history is not uh, sanctified, but your word is. And so we ask as we study the history and, and a desire to understand the scriptures better, that you would sanctify us in the truth. Thy word is truth. Again, Father, we pray for the Odell family. We ask for your hand of mercy, your hand of comfort, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.